Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Pulse, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. I'm Matt Palazzolo, Senior Investment Strategist at Bernstein and Head of Investment Insights. On today's episode of The Pulse, our co-head of investment strategies, Beata Kerr, will be discussing the latest perspective on the pandemic with Bernstein Research's Senior U.S. Biopharmaceuticals Analyst, Ronnie Gao. Thanks for joining us today in our discussion with our resident coronavirus expert, Ronnie Gal. I'm Beata Kerr, Bernstein's co-head of Investment Strategies. And those of you who've listened to The Pulse over the last year will recall that Ronnie and I sat down quite a few points throughout the year in 2020 to understand the coronavirus, get the latest updates on the medical response, and Ronnie made some very prescient predictions. In fact, last fall, I was a bit stunned by his optimism about the timeline and efficacy around vaccine development. And specifically, Ronnie had said that life could get back to normal by mid-2021. And here we are. Like I said, his forecasts were incredibly prescient, and we thought it was a great time to sit down yet again and talk about what's new. So Ronnie, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thanks for having me again, and uh, thank you very much for the kind words. Well, it's great to have this partnership. So let's step back for a moment and think about where we are now versus where we've been. How do we compare today to even a few months ago, or certainly to the first time we sat down, which was April of 2020? Yeah. So obviously we're in a much, much better place now. Deaths right now from COVID, uh, 3,500 a day in January. There are right now about 150 in early July. Case counts per day was 225,000 around the same time. In the middle of June, we were at 11,000 cases per day. The U.S. population is, is roughly 50% vaccinated, and all the data we have suggests the vaccines are about 95% effective against the original strain they were designed against. And absolute measure of the disease in any way you look at them are, are quite low where we are today versus, versus uh, six months ago. So clearly an amazing uh, level of progress. And were those numbers that you shared for the U.S. or for global? Those were the U.S. numbers. So that is remarkable progress. I do remember quite clearly the first time we sat down as you were explaining the curve, as you were explaining what it would take for that curve to meaningfully change. But I also remember last summer you were talking about the fall and the future. And amid your optimism for vaccine progress, you also mentioned something about variants and how it wouldn't quite be over when we thought it would be over. So here we are recording at a time where on the headlines, the Delta variant is really front and center. So let's talk about this wave. What do you see happening going forward with the Delta variant? The signs that we have here are clearly pointing to another wave of the virus. In the UK, it's already happened. They have as many infections today as they ever had. Granted, the measurement tools that we have are not much better and, and fewer infections are missed, but they are essentially with the same number of cases they had in the peak of their historical epidemic. And just today, uh, Goldman Sachs announced that they want everybody to mask up when they go to the office. So they're clearly there. If we look at the US, we are seeing a pretty sharp upward trend in the number of cases. We're about 2X where we were uh, merely two weeks ago. And the Delta virus probably now accounts for over half of the cases in the United States. And the way we are looking at this, we are going to go almost straight up and have a pretty substantial wave of infection that will probably peak around the second half of August to the second half of September. 
Uh, and this will probably end up dominating the news over the next month. Okay, so let's dig a little bit deeper into the variants. So it's going to be half the cases. It's obviously picking up. The peak is going to occur mid-August. What does that mean, first of all, for all those numbers we started the show talking about, hospitalizations and deaths? Let's talk about the U.S. where half the population is vaccinated. Let's start with that. Right. So what we have here is a virus is about twice as infective as the original Wuhan strain, the what we call the R0, which is the measure of infectivity is about 6.0 versus 3.0 for the Wuhan strain. Uh, luckily for us, the virus is not more virulent. That is, if you were, the chances of death, if you were not immunized are roughly the same. And our vaccines, uh, both uh, the ones from Moderna and the one from Pfizer, have a very strong proof that they work against this additional strain. And they protect you, the person who were immunized, uh, from getting sick and dying at about the same rate as the original Wuhan uh, strain. I think the Israeli numbers, which are the ones we have most of, are about 97% protection from uh, the Wuhan strain and 93% protection from the new strain. And, and those numbers are, are not random. That is, it's not like some of the people who are immunized are now exposed. It's more like if you have some sort of a predisposing condition or a weak immune system, then you know the bar is a little bit lower to get sick. But that's roughly uh, where the numbers are. So we are quite solid from that perspective with our immunization. Now, in terms of what it means for infection uh, rates in the United States, we assume about 36 more million Americans will need to be infected for us to reach herd immunity versus where we were before. As an indication, 57 million Americans were infected during the last peak in the November or March. So we'll be about two-thirds of that peak in terms of the number of infections. Now, the good news is that the number of deaths, simply because the sensitive population have largely been immunized, will probably be a lot lower. We estimate about 70,000 excess deaths in the United States, this uh, new Delta wave, which is roughly what you see for a typical uh, influenza season. So this is going to be just not going to be fun. It's going to be moderately bad in terms of the, its, its impact, but it's not going to be nearly as bad as the first wave in terms of mortality and hospitalization. Well, thank you for ending on a high note there. When you were talking about the 95% or 93 and 97% efficacy using the Israeli study, is that effective against contracting it at all? Or is that the effectivity against serious illness or death? Could you just clarify that? Yeah, so that is the effectiveness again against getting sick and especially seriously ill and not against being effective. As a matter of fact, one of the big concerns around this new Delta wave is that even if you were immunized, you can still carry it. Biologically, what happens is your immune system, after being ramped up to a very high level initially after you're immunized or gets infected, uh, essentially cools down and the immunity retreats into the lymph nodes and sits there waiting for new infection. So when you encounter a particularly infective virus, you potentially can be infected and carry the virus in your nasal passages for two or three days before your immune system re-ramps up and uh, eliminates the virus. So the concern here is that people who are immunized, especially who are immunized early, call it six months or more ago, could potentially be carriers of the virus and pass it to the unprotected population. So one of the major concerns around this particular strain is that it will begin to be essentially a second threat to those who are non-immunized or to sensitive population uh, that don't have a strong immune system. For example, if you're going under chemotherapy and your white blood cell count drops sharply, presumably you're unable to mount immunity. And if somebody next to you is infected, you might be able to pass. 
the Delta variant too. Yeah, so we're clearly going to see more headlines around the Delta variant in the U.S. You know, every day, like you said. And the real question for us as investors will be, what will the economic and market impact be? And you referenced that. For example, I think it was in the UK that Goldman was requiring offices to be masked. And so it is an interesting question. We saw yesterday Los Angeles County was uh, reinforcing a mask mandate. So what do you think the response could be from governments, you know, local or national to this increasing wave? Do you think we will be back to the phases that we were in a year ago with these massive national lockdowns? I don't think so. The answer is that as long as this Delta variant can be handled through immunization, then that becomes the logical response. So if you think about locking down whole sets of the population versus saying, look, if you are concerned about the virus, you better get yourself immunized. So the answer will almost certainly be a more aggressive drive to immunize the non-immunized population. The second question is, what will organizations, people cities do in addition to that. So if we're not locking down, is it reasonable to expect the immunized population to put a mask or to maintain a certain level of distancing measures or not to congregate in sporting events or restaurants or subway? And our take is there probably will be a measure of that. So I think we'll end up maintaining a maximum capacity in uh, indoor places like gyms or restaurants that will be lower than the ones we had before. Uh, we would probably be asked to mask in the presence of large groups of people, especially ones that we don't work with every day or see every day. And that will probably continue until the Delta wave is behind us, which is probably close to the end of uh, this calendar year. And the logic here is simple. You know, all of us have some sort of an older relative whose immune system might not be up to snuff. We might all know somebody who has got a compromised immune system because of their known a strong immunosuppressant or they're undergoing chemotherapy. So it, it does offer a level of social measure for all of us to help make sure those people don't get infected. But that does, probably does not come to this idea that we'll all you know, go back home and close down. So I will interpret your response as if you want to have a party, you should have it in short order with 100 people. I think that's a good idea, probably. Uh, well, let's look at the state experiences. And, you know, you have published something recently looking at the correlation between COVID incidents and vaccination rates. And I don't think your data showed anything really surprising, given the efficacy numbers that you've shown. But I think it feels that we've moved into a different environment. You just referenced this, that it's really more local response than national response because of the differences in population. Do you want to comment on that about the experiences that you've seen locally? Sure. So one of the things that happened in the United States over the last two or three months was that the, the disease was coming down everywhere. So states that had higher vaccination and lower vaccination because so many people were infected and there was a general retreat of the virus and there was no real separation in the rate of infections between the states. Now that we have a growing strain uh, that is more infective, we are beginning to see a very sharp separation between states where immunization rates are high versus states when immunization rates are low. Places like Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, generally the Northeast, have a, a very high rate of vaccination among adults, above 75% for those uh, over 18. And we are seeing the number of reported daily cases per million coming under 20. Then in states where the vaccinations rates are low, below 50% of the adult population, places like Louisiana, Wyoming, Mississippi, Alabama, a lot of the South, um, we are seeing infections rates in the rate of 80 to 120 or even more infections 
per day. So we are seeing a very short Let me difference. stop you there for a moment, just for context. When we first sat down in April of 2020, can you just remind our listeners what was the run rate of number of infections per day when the U.S. locked down? How much bigger was that than what it is today? So the problem is that we had a much weaker measurement system uh, than right. we use today. But the rate of infections per day back then was about 10x mm-hmm. where it is today. Okay. Um, so we are still in a pretty good position everywhere, uh, but the trend lines is very sharply against us. And we are beginning to see the separation between the state based on vaccination when the states that have a high vaccination rate stay reasonably low and the states that are not are coming back up pretty sharply. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when we think about it in terms of the economy and the impact on markets, we do think the markets are really paying attention, obviously, but to this discussion about this is still 10 times better than it was a year ago, the initial market response was so strong, given the magnitude of uncertainty, given how fast it was spreading globally, given the unclear path of response. It does feel to us as investors that we're in a different place today because of this localized ability to respond. So we remain optimistic, actually, about the equity market response to the change that we're seeing now and the variant, uh, mostly because of what you've spoken about earlier, about the efficacy rates and the localization of the response. But I'm curious if you could comment on various global responses and what you're seeing in terms of differences amongst countries and the response and the ability to respond given different vaccines that were used. Yeah, I think the most interesting phenomena is the differences between what you're seeing in places like the UK or locally in the US and in general in Western Europe versus what you see in some what I would call island nations. So the UK and the US are beginning to introduce gradual measures. The thinking is largely how do we manage the epidemic and protect the sensitive populations without causing a whole a whole ground lockdown. On the other hand, the island nations, places like Taiwan or Australia, or I would even throw Israel in that respect, uh, given it's mostly closed borders, the notion is can we stop the infection from ever coming in? So there they're moving to much uh, sharper measures, shutting down airports or limiting international travel, or at least discussing that possibility. And that all largely stems from, from the New Zealand experience that was able to essentially avoid the epidemic uh, by closing the original wave of the epidemic by essentially closing their borders very, very early and before the infection got endemic within the local population. So there's a a temptation on part of Ireland nation to go that route, as opposed to saying, look, how do we just protect the the sensitive population? And and that makes sense. There's also a clear difference uh, between the rates of immunization. Although I would argue that initially the US had immunization is beginning to fade as Western, uh, other Western countries, which have much more of a centralized healthcare system, are able to penetrate the deeper into the population quickly uh, and immunize a larger percentage versus the United States. All right, well, let's come back to the U.S., where there's been this growing conversation around the potential for booster shots and, frankly, some confusion about it in terms of what the CDC is saying versus what Pfizer is saying. Can you help us make sense of what's going on? What's your perspective? Are we going to need these? When are we going to need these? What makes sense? So as I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, your immune system after the initial wave doesn't quite go dormant, but essentially it retreats back to the lymph node and the spleen, and it's not present there in the nose and potentially can carry the disease for two or three days. And what Pfizer have, have come out and argued is that what you want to make sure is that the large percentage of population, although they might be still protected from uh, getting sick, uh, should be boosted to make sure that they can't carry the virus and thus able to better 
stop the broader infection of the population. So this is kind of like uh, get immunized, not because it's good for you, but it's good for public health. That view has not been accepted by the CDC. The CDC and ASEP, which is their kind of like the professional standard setting body, have argued that you should only need to be boosted if you have a risk of getting sick again. So the objective of the immunization is not to provide public health benefit, but protect you as an individual. And if you are being protected from disease for a long duration of time through your initial two injections, why should you get a third? So that's the difference of opinion today that they're not willing to change those right now. Pfizer, and I'm guessing Moderna will do the same thing, are running very large trials to try to demonstrate uh, some public health benefit or at least some benefit to the people who were immunized initially uh, as a result of a, a booster shot. And at this point, what's pretty clear is that if you have a weaker immunity, if you're very elderly and frail, or if you have, are taking some sort of immunosuppressant drugs, like the one used for various immune, autoimmune conditions, you probably will get a booster shot. But the rest of us who have a competent immune system probably are not going to get one. Okay. So a targeted population. Yeah. Target population. Let's see where things stand in a month or two. I mean, the views among the public health officials might change if the Delta wave gets to be very, very high. But let's see where that goes. Look, I'm a mom of two. We've talked about our kids and the experience of COVID over the last year. I'm curious. It looks like schools will be fully open in the fall. Any comments on kids and the likelihood of vaccines actually transitioning over to that population? I've seen some recent press about potentially they're not going to get vaccinated. I'm curious your thoughts if you've done any work on this under 12 population and what you think will happen there. Yeah, so the testing of the vaccine is taking place. And the notion is, uh, will they actually provide uh, enough benefit without significant side effects that will justify the immunization in that group? The issue is your, the immune system of children is what's called more reactogenic, which is the side effects that happen right after the injections that all of us who were immunized felt are simply much more pronounced in children. Their immune system responds much harder. And if they're not subjects or, or they're, if they're odds of being infected are much lower than, you know, why are we immunizing them? And as a matter of fact, even if you get the infection, if the side effects are so low, the effect of the disease are so low, shouldn't we make sure they all get infected when they're young and the disease doesn't do much, uh, then wait for them to get older and be immunized and get the infection when they're older and potentially suffer more significant side effects. You know, I remember when I was a child, there were like chicken box parties where your parents made sure you got infected as a kid to make sure you don't get it more virulently as an adult. And, you know, we would joke internally that it might be time to do COVID parties for children. So the short answer about your kids is the risk your children from getting infected with having significant morbidity from COVID is very low. If the risk reward justifies it with the vaccines and they're lowering the dose for children and so forth, then your kids will get the infections. Uh, if they don't, well, it might not be so bad if they actually get the COVID virus at a younger age. If a new virulent strain emerges that actually hurts kids, then obviously all bets are off and their responses by families and countries will obviously be much, much sharper. But we're not seeing much of that right now. I don't know. Should I ask you for an over-under on whether the vaccine will come out for under 12-year-olds? It sounds like this is a fast emerging. It could go either way. Oh, it's probably an over. It's over 50, over 50-50. Mostly because I think what they'll do is say, well, some parents will still want to unite the children. Some kids are more susceptible than others because they've got comorbid conditions. So let's let's make it available. Now, would it be recommended for all the kids? That's a different matter. Right now, I'm not so sure that will be the case. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like we're going to have to meet again and talk about that when we get that data and think what the implications are for schools. I'll just close out by asking you the question of looking at the amazing progress and innovation that was made over the course of the last year in terms of the speed of this vaccine development and the mechanisms that these vaccines use on the mRNA front. What do you think about the future? What do you think the medical and scientific community has learned from this? And what are the consequences of that? Yeah, so there's an enormous amount of effort heading that way. So the first question is, where else in the vaccine world can we throw this messenger RNA vaccines with uh, good results? And the almost immediate answer is you start with influenza. With influenza right now, we are guessing what the strain will be six months out and manufacture a lot of vaccines in order to do that with the messenger RNA vaccinations, because they're so much easier to make. You don't have to make that guess. You wait until a month, month and a half before the strain hits the United States, and then you manufacture the, the correct strain. So our chances of uh, putting a seasonal influenza behind us are quite good. Right now, our vaccine is about 30%. Gone. No more flu. Yeah, basically. I mean, we'll go down from 30% effective vaccine to 80% effective vaccine. And that essentially means that the flu will be something that will go the way of the rotary film. Mm. Some of us remember it, some of us never ran into one. The second order attacks will be on activation of the immune system to do other things. So most of the efforts there is around immune oncology. The idea is, can you use this vaccine to somehow, instead of presenting an external virus-like object, but present a tumor-like object and harness the immune system against that? Uh, There's a big effort now taking place. We're probably a year and a half away from the first set of data that will look at that. The third effort, uh, which is a couple of medical breakthroughs away, is this idea of giving therapeutic proteins uh, to the patients using this. So instead of you having to immunize uh, to get an injections every month of Humira for your rheumatoid arthritis, uh, can we just give you the gene for your Meyer and you'll make it yourself for six or nine months? The problem is we still can't control the amounts very well. Well, it's great to end on this high note of what innovation that you said a year ago, the global focus on solving one problem led to incredible innovation at an incredible speed. Obviously, at the loss of other research that suffered in that period, but it's great to see that this development of mRNA vaccines has really positive consequences for other areas as well. So, Ronnie, thank you so much for sitting down with me again. It was great to catch up. Anything else you want to add and get out there for our listeners? Just hoping we'll all be beyond that COVID wave, the next COVID wave, and, and we'll not see another one. And I kind of hoping this will be our last conversation with uh, some bad news ahead of us. I hope so too. I hope so too, for everybody's sake. Thanks again, Ronnie. Thank you, Harry. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy hearing insights like these from our experts in the field like Ronnie. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Email us your thoughts or questions or any feedback that you might have to insights at Bernstein.com. And be sure to find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bernstein PWM. Until next time, thanks and be well.